Welcome to Game of Stones, everybody. I am Sean Graham Scott, not alongside, as he usually is. He will be along in a little bit, as this week we are revisiting an episode with the Olympics just finishing and with the Paralympics, the Briar currently ongoing. We recognize that there are a lot of folks who might be new to the sport and new to the show, and we're so excited to have anybody who has discovered curling for the first time over the past few weeks to join the curling community and just fall in love with this great game. But at the same time, I think it's important that we all recognize that there are things that the sport and the community can improve upon. And if you've been following, say, Andrew Paris on social media and the amazing work that, that he has been doing on diversity within curling, you can see that as a community, and as a sport, curling has a ways to go in ensuring that all curling facilities are uh, welcoming and accessible to everybody in our communities, wherever we live. And in the spirit of that, we wanted to revisit a discussion that we had with Portia Stevenson and Aria Moore from the Wyan County Curling Club out in California, and Jason Chang, who is the men's skip of Team Hong Kong. He's been on a couple times, uh, most recently talking about the Pacific Asia Curling Championship, the final edition of that, which was held back in the fall. And we wanted to discuss their respective experiences in the sport and ways in which the sport can become more diverse, reach out to new communities. And this is a discussion that we initially hosted on Facebook, but the overlords of Facebook have decided that it no longer exists in video form on Facebook. I'm not entirely sure what happened with there. I'm not suggesting that there is any mal intent on Facebook's part, but we can't find it there anymore. And I'm not entirely sure exactly what happened with that. There was a couple issues on our end too, but so anyway, I don't know, but it doesn't exist there anymore, which made us want to, so certainly uh, we want to uh, have it available here again on the main feed. So while you're enjoying, hopefully enjoying all the games from the Briar and the Paralympics, we wanted to also revisit this discussion on diversity in curling. So let's get right to it. In our discussion, as Scott and I welcomed Ari Moore, Portia Stevenson, and Jason Chang. All right, welcome everybody to our roundtable discussion this week on the podcast, talking about diversity in curling. And very excited to welcome in our guests this week. First, we'll welcome in Portia Stevenson and Aria Moore from USA Curling from the Wine Country Curling Club out there in California. Competitive front end. The bio that they sent us is out of date, so I won't read it. Uh, but. Uh, multiple bond spiels every year have played in women's national championships, uh, doubles events, uh, everything uh, across the board. And they're joining us from California. Thanks for getting up early and joining us. We appreciate yeah, it. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. 
Uh, and also very excited to welcome in Jason Chang, the skip of the Hong Kong men's national team, also has played in the mixed double world championship with our friend Ling, who's local to us here in Ottawa. I've played against her. I don't know if I've ever played with Ling, but I, I certainly have played against her, and she has beaten the hell out of me multiple times. So, uh, <laughs> Good for her. Uh, J- yeah. Uh, Jason, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Scott, Sean, and you folks in California. Nice to see you. So we wanted to have this discussion because not only what's going on, but something that that I've talked about for years, the first time I ever did a podcast about curling, I mentioned that curling doesn't represent necessarily the country I live in. Every year when Vic Router does his little essay at the end of a Briar or Scotty's. He talks about how curling brings out what is the best in Canada and and really is an example of what Canada is. But I look at the picture of all the teams that they show and it doesn't look like the country that I live in every day. Certainly, you know, in a city, it, it just doesn't look the same way. So I've had this internal monologue with myself about does curling, is curling exclusionary? And we've alluded to it on the, the podcast before. So I wanted to have a more in-depth discussion. So uh, to start, I want to just make sure that everyone is comfortable if we start with the baseline that curling is not a diverse sport right now. Uh, so let's start with Ari and Portia. Is that statement out of line with your experience? No, it's not. Um, it's completely in line with our experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We definitely do not see many um, people that look like us, um, whether we're traveling in our country or outside. We've done multiple deals in Canada and internationally. So just seeing that there aren't many people of um, color or diversity on the ice is is absolutely a true statement. Yeah. And not to mention, if we do see diversity in any of the clubs. I mean, it's on one hand. So you can probably pick out the amount of folks that you see on the ice that are people of color or that if you want to, whatever you define diversity as. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely something I've, I've noticed in this sport um, comparatively to playing basketball, running track, Porsche's done sports obviously also. And, you know, you see a, a really different group of people, different groups of people, diverse groups of people, everyone interacting. Um, but with curling, you you go out on the ice and you look around and you look like you and that's really it. <laughs> and you're like, hi, you stand out. Yes, the moment you walk into the room, the music stops. Hello, everyone. Um, even if folks don't necessarily know anything about us or know what curling club we're from or if we curl at all the moment we walk into a curling club it's like oh those are two black girls <laughs> and it's a, it's it's a unique experience we get the same thing when we get onto the ice sean you know we we've discussed previously some of the statements that were made in essence and they're they're absolutely true because of that i think naturally when people see others that don't look like them, there's a little bit of, hmm, a little bit of hesitation, maybe some question, um, maybe even some awkward feeling, maybe some discomfort. I think that's anyone. If I, if we had a group of redheads in here and then all of a sudden a blonde came in, you're like, oh, blonde. 
So I think it's it's not necessarily just um, the color. I think it's really just seeing different looking people yeah. that are coming into the curling community that are fresh faces that people haven't seen before. Different stands out. Yeah. Right. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and Jason, does that is that fall in line with your experiences as well? Yeah, Sean. I mean, I, I completely agree that uh, the diversity is is uh, an issue in in the sport. It's not just to be in inclusive of all communities uh, in Canada and in their case in the U.S., but um, it's also hurting the growth of the sport too, right? Which is really important. Look, you talked about Vic Router's little essay monologue at the end of the Briar at the Scotties, and you're absolutely right. They 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 show the different teams' pictures, and you see the group picture, and they all look very similar. Those those people, and you're absolutely right. It doesn't reflect the diversity of the country that we are. I think there's been some improvement. There's a little bit more diversity at my curling club and the curling clubs I see in the Toronto area um, since I started curling in Toronto. Um, but it hasn't really made any leaps and bounds uh, of improvement. I remember when I first started playing on the, you know, the Ontario Chrome Tour back in the day, and uh, I was really often the only one who was not, you know, if it was a men's bonds field, a white male on the ice. I was usually the only one. Sometimes there was one other person, but, you know, we, we were the token diversity, you know, individuals uh, in, in those bonds fields um, for a long, long time, right? Yeah. And I, I, the first time I brought this up at a curling club too, I, I said, you know, they're, you know, it's everyone looks the same. And somebody said to me, well, what about Jim? And Jim was the one black member of the club. And I thought, well, the fact yeah. that you're like, th like that's to that's the definition of tokenism when you could say, right, well, right, right. The one, right? Yeah. Like that, that's part of the problem. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it really does stand out. And so I, I'm curious because it's not a diverse sport, you know, the, the three of you have competed at, at very high levels within the sport, but it, it's also a sport that a lot of people get into usually from family connections. And, and certainly when you watch on TV, uh, you know, like with other sports, you get want to get involved and test it out. So I'm curious as to how you each of you got involved in curling and where the interest gen was generated, given that it's hard to find people who look like you to, to look up to when you're watching on TV. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I'll, I'll yeah, sorry, throw that. I, I Sorry, I should be more direct. We'll throw that to California first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Our situation was a little unique because I am a Beatles fan, um, a huge Beatles fan, probably an under, and just a, I love the Beatles. Beatles fanatic. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Understatement for sure. I love the Beatles. Um, so we were watching a movie one day, Help, and uh, there's a scene where John and George are curling. And I told Portia, I said, you know, I know that this is a huge sport in Canada, but it's never like on TV in the US. I wonder if they do this here. And just on a fluke, it was like a Saturday afternoon, she Googled it and she saw that Wine Country Curling Club, which is like 20 minutes from our house, was hosting a Learn to Curl at like 7.30 in the morning the next day. And she was like, well, you know, we could sign up. I think it's 25 bucks. And I'm like, do you want to do this? And she's like, yeah, I'll do it with you. I'm like, all right, we're down. Let's go. And we went the next day, um, short sleeves, no gloves. Um, hair completely pulled back, freezing cold, had no idea what to expect. We're like, oh, okay, like we're going to go out there for like five minutes, throw some stones. 
And then the moment we got out there, we're like, okay, so this is a real sport. Um, and people are taking this very, very seriously. And we got out there and we just, we loved it. They were Wine Country Curling Club, Bob Poole, Katie Feldman, which was the prior president and now the current president, Katie, uh, were really just welcoming to us. They they opened arms for us. They they said, you know, we, if this is a sport that you're interested in, here are the next set of days for you to come back. Um, we offer coaching here. And the president had said, you know, if you guys really want to learn, you can join my team and I'll teach you the ropes. And we were hooked. And the next thing you know, we signed up for a pawn steal a month later, got a taste of what winning was like because we made it to semifinals. And we were like, ah, we're going. We're sticking with this. We like this. Here it goes. That's kind of our intro story. <laughs> we started curling from the Beatles movie Help. How ironic. <laughs> that, that might be the only origin story for any competitive curler ever the, the Beatles movie yeah. <laughs> I think one of the biggest takeaways is that the the Beatles inspired our interest but the fact that wine country was welcoming of us at the time was really what made I think it easy for us to be competitive and to want to continue um, though we definitely got some stares that first day and people were wondering if we were in the right place so to speak there were a couple of people like Adia mentioned that were really welcoming and friendly to us. And I think by, by the end of that first practice, I almost had a, a full tuck. Yeah. I was the one who was, wow. I feel like that's still the story of our life, but she just had it naturally. And I'm like, all right, I can't look like crap here next to her. Let me try to get this together. And then by the time we did that first bond spiel, we met Jerome Larson and he just, changed our world he was like who are these girls that want to curl come here open his arms and just hugged us and was like you girls keep your eyes set on the olympics and go for it and you know that's that's the really been it. that's been our history and now here we are five years later yeah. uh, jason what about you what's your origin story in the sport yeah um it's not as exciting as Aya and Porsche's, uh, but there is a little bit of connection between me and more important because I also throw tuck. So congratulations for being able to throw tuck as a natural. Um, no, well, I'm, I was born in Hong Kong. Um, and, um, and as you may imagine, there's no curling in Hong Kong. There's still very little curling in Hong Kong. We started developing some curling in Hong Kong now, but certainly when I was young, uh, there was no curling in Hong Kong. We immigrated to Canada, uh, to Calgary specifically. And, um, I think I just liked, like Scott, I liked watching TV. So I would, I wouldn't watch anything that was on TV. And, you know, CBC would have all sorts of sports uh, on, including curling and weightlifting and diving and, you know, all sorts of weird things. And I really gravitated to curling. I just loved watching it. But it actually took me a long time to get into a curling club. As you mentioned, a lot of people get into the curling club because they know someone or have a family member who curls. And this is what perpetuates the fact that the curling clubs look the same right? Year after year, because the same people bring similar looking people into the club to curl. It didn't take me until really, I only seriously started curling when I got to university. Uh, I moved to Toronto for university, uh, wanted to find some new activities to do. Um, and U of T had a group of, uh, there was a U of T curling club. Basically, it was a group of curlers who curled out of Easter Curling Club, where I still curl today, 
They help form the teams. We play in the leagues of East York. There's no uh, specific time slot, but they help form the teams for us into the mixed and the women's and the men's leagues, etc. So that's how I first seriously got into curling. I loved watching it. I never went to a curling rink because I didn't even know where they were in Calgary. Actually, I never knew where any curling rink was in Calgary until partway through university when I went home. I was driving down one of the roads and I noticed the curling club for the very first time, probably 15 years after I started curling or started watching curling. Now, Ari and Portia mentioned that they their initial welcome was very positive. Did you have the same experience, Jason, where you know you went to the club, you started to participate? Was it a welcoming experience for you when you first went? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was very welcoming um, for two reasons. One is because there was the U of T Curling Club. You know, there were a lot of students who were curling. I think at its height, and we don't have this relationship with U of T anymore per se, but at the at the time, there were about 30, even 35 U of T curlers curling at East York Curling Club. And so um, I went to the open house. Uh, basically, the East York Curling Club gave U of T an open house time slot to recruit students to join the club. So there were you know, probably 50 or 60 students there at that open house. And uh, the, the instructors who were U of T students who were helping us learn to curl, uh, I, I knew a little bit about curling already, but... Uh, they were helping all those who, who had never seen or, or heard about curling or watched curling or played curling before. They were certainly very welcoming. There were a few club members there as well. I remember the club manager uh, was there as well. Um, and then they convinced they convinced me to join in a league. That's how it started for me. And when I joined the league, uh, it took me a while. You know, it, there's, there's a few steps to a new curler, right? One, you're just trying to learn how to curl. And then you join into a league and you're just trying to figure out how to play the game. At some point, you try to play in a bond spiel, right? And for a lot of curlers, there's a bit of a leap to doing that too, right? And I think clubs and leagues need to do more to encourage their new curlers to participate in those types of activities, right? To get into that curling culture where the bond spiels and the interaction and the fun afterwards outside of curling too. Um, but I had played in my first bond spiel, not in my first season, but maybe my second or third season. And the team that I got put with, they were so encouraging. They actually were the ones who encouraged me to get my first pair of curling shoes. They were like, you're a good curler. You should get curling shoes. They'll make you so much better, right? So I did. The next season, I got curling shoes from, from that. So for me, it was a very welcoming experience. But what I saw, though, was there wasn't really, other than the outreach through the U of T program, there wasn't that outreach to the wider community for the diversity, right? We've gotten some benefit from that U of T program because university students were quite diverse in that group. But I don't think curling clubs have done enough to proactively outreach to different communities. And I, I, I think, you know, some communities have, you know, taken up curling more than others. Uh, and it maybe depends on where you live, right? Certainly at my club at East York, we do have, you know, a, a good number of Asian curlers who curl there. And we're not necessarily in an Asian hotbed in East York by any means, but we certainly haven't reached out to as well to, for example, the black community or the South Asian community, right? So there, there are so many pockets of um, groups that I think curling clubs can and should be reaching out to, not just to increase diversity at the club and to make it reflective of, in our case, of Canada and Toronto, but for the survival of curling clubs, right, in the long term. Yeah, especially in a city like Toronto where we've seen – how many clubs have closed, Jason? It's at least two, right? Oh, quite a few, right? Uh, well – probably two in very recent memory. So St. George's Golf and Country Club, this was their very final season of curling. Um, and most of the closures of curling facilities have been with the country clubs, um, I would say, in the GTA. Weston Golf and Country Club ended their curling program. 
um, a couple of years ago. Um, and if you go back further in history, there, there were others, right? Um, so we've got lost clubs. We've gained a couple in the, in the GTA. The King uh, Curling Club is, is one that came online within the last 10 years, I believe. And I know there's been some extra sheets added, for example, in Newmarket at the York Curling Club maybe seven or eight years ago. But uh, there really hasn't been more ice that compensates for the loss of ice, right? Um, now, I think part of the, the reason is the country club is even more exclusive and people looking the same than even a regular curling facility or curling center. Um, so I think that's where some of the additional challenges are with the golf and country clubs. Um, they haven't been expanding their membership base um, among other, other potential issues. There is a movement right now in the GTA to build a new curling facility in the west end of Toronto. There is currently, with the closing of St. George's, there is now officially no curling facility in the west side of Toronto proper. Uh, so there is a west end curling committee that is trying to lobby the city to build a new facility or repurpose an existing facility for, uh, for curling, for dedicated curling. Um, and that process is going through uh, study and review from uh, parks, forestry, and recreation here. But one so, of the key issues, though, that the city is interested in is, you know, will the facility be full and will diverse people be using the facility? Different age groups, different uh, people of different, you know, racial backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's a key part of when a city is evaluating whether they should build a new recreation facility. Is it inclusive for lots of people? Yeah, and certainly in a city like Toronto, certainly the most diverse city in the country, you it needs to be a diverse membership to survive and to be successful. It's sort of part of, of what it should be. But uh, I, I'm curious, uh, Ari and, and Portia, that Jason mentioned that you know he had that good first experience and then got on a team and had a positive experience. What was that transition like for you from the learn to curl? You mentioned you met Jerome, uh, but but getting placed on a team and Based on the bios, uh, have you two ever played separately, uh, like on different teams, or has it always been together? We've always played together. Um, okay. We've had some recommendations from different curlers to play separately, and we've been pretty firm in our beliefs on sticking together. You know, we, we know how we play. We understand each other. We're a dynamic duo, so we haven't wanted to. <laughs> um, but that transition for us came pretty quickly, I'd say. Um, that first experience that I mentioned, our first bond spill where we had met Jerome, that was that really just excited us, put us on our high horse. We're like, all right, the unicorn is there. We're chasing after it. Um, and then we started noticing going to try to get practice ice, um, trying to team with other women to play with competitively, um, trying to get mentors, trying to get coaches were all very challenging for us. And I don't believe that we would have had that same challenge if we would have looked differently. Yeah, and you know, I'll say that some of the anxiety maybe even in, in wanting to play separately or even explore something like that is knowing the experience that we've had together and how we've kind of been treated differently or outcasted, I'll say, when it comes to team dynamics or trying to find a consistent team. I think finding a good team that anyone works well with, especially in this sport, is super imperative to your success. 
and having someone that you can practice with consistently, like Adia mentioned, um, knowing the way that your other teammates perform or when they're underperforming so you know how to compensate. All of those team dynamics are super important to grow and I think foster with a group of four people that you work with consistently. And at first, we initially had thought that perhaps some of the women that we wanted to work with that we were super interested in or maybe that we thought might be interested in us were busy with their schedules, um, different goals as far as competitiveness is concerned or commitments. But after a while, we started to see that a lot of those same folks partnered with people that looked more like them rather than us. And after going through that for multiple years, it, it starts to feel as though it's, it's not necessarily just because people are busy or that time commitments are an issue. It's more so about the level of comfort, whether people want to address that or blatantly say it or not. It is very obvious that it's more difficult to partner at times with people that don't look like you rather than to stay with what you know, as you mentioned, maybe curling with your family or friends that you've grown up with forever. So there's absolutely a risk there that we feel like certain people don't want to take and, and that's, that's okay. Would it make us more comfortable if we saw other people that were more diverse in our sport? Absolutely. Um, but for now we just work on what we can work on, which is remaining a consistent front end and doing doubles events that are open when we're allowed to. Yeah. We've been spending a lot of time in Canada before the pandemic happened. We were going back and forth to Canada almost every month doing different bond skills there um, because Canada has a lot of really great open double skills. Um, and we don't see a lot of that in the States. Uh, we see a lot of mixed doubles, but we don't see open doubles. And that's given us an opportunity to really just play and not have to worry about finding all the, two other, all the other stuff that comes with it. We just want to play. Um, I think when we started traveling more, we started seeing some consistency around some snares, a little chatter. You know, you go into locker rooms. Every, it, and of course, you know, you go into locker rooms and people come in. Everyone stops talking because if they're strategizing. But you know, you notice when people stop talking immediately when you walk past them. Or it's a, oh, you know, oh, they think they're just going to take over our sport. Or, you know, you just hear a little side comments. Who do they think they are? And we were hearing these comments when we just started buying practice eyes. You know, we would go and literally have like $5 Target shirts that were V-necks that were the same color. And people would say, oh, who do they think they are? Who's they're trying to look all matchy-matchy? We even had girls that were like, oh, you, you twins? Are you guys sisters? They automatically assume that we're related. They automatically assume that we're sisters because we're two black people that are, that are curling together. And I understand that there's a lot of, you know, brotherly love and sisterly love that happens in the sport. We see lots of, you know, <laughs> siblings that are teammates. But we are not related. But that's the first thing that that folks think. And so it's it's challenging when we were starting off and going through that transition to see how people were responding to us and then always having to react. And it was it, it is it's made us grown into the folks that we are today. And it's one of the reasons why we continue playing together. We'll, we'll never separate. 
You know, Sean, you mentioned, and just to kind of wrap up this this final thought here, you mentioned before um, seeing a portion of our Essence article where we discussed maybe people not wanting to shake our hands or do the typical good curling, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's so welcomed in the sport that everyone's accustomed to. And I won't, I won't call out the curling club and the spiel that we were at, but I'll just say our first experience in Canada that we had had uh, playing internationally and representing the U.S., we were very excited. We went to a club that we didn't know much about, um, but we were willing to go because we had seen that there were a bunch of international players there. And though we weren't very seasoned in our careers, we thought it was going to be <laughs> a great learning opportunity for us to, to lose with pride, if nothing else, and some great connections, maybe meet some other women who were like-minded um, that we could form some connections with. And upon arrival, when we had gotten there, our first game, we were introduced um, to the other team and we noticed that they didn't want to shake our hands. Um, I think maybe one of the women had didn't take her glove off and she mm -hmm. shook our hand, but the rest of the team had just went on Great into process. their practice. And we had thought initially that that was sort of a routine because we didn't know international competitive play. So we thought maybe silly us from the States, a good curling is just like a uh, arena sport or more right. of like a casual fun, yeah. handshake that you do. But when it comes down to being competitive, maybe you don't shake hands. It wasn't until the second, um, the, the second game that we had had that we saw that same team take off their gloves and shake everyone's hands. Yeah. And so that really just like took us back a bit and rubbed us the wrong way. We didn't understand why um, we had continued to get snares and snickers throughout the rest of the tournament. And mind you, we were losing pretty terribly yeah, at that time. You know, we were so new. We weren't some big threat, but just the fact I think that we had shown up to a club that didn't expect to have us yeah. looking differently and being so lively and ready to compete or make connections was off-putting to some people. And that's something that has stuck with us ever since. We wish that that wasn't the case. We've yeah, seen Portia, that's so much so, sorry, I just want to say that that's what must have been such a, you know, terrible first impression, right? You you got not only of playing in a competitive bond spiel, but of Canada, maybe, right? Right. <laughs> Canada. So, so as a typical Canadian or a Hong Kong Canadian, I, I'd like to apologize on behalf of all of Canada for what you experienced in, in that situation. Certainly, uh, you know, it's, it's, and this reminds me of something, you know, uh, at my work, I work for the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and one of the things that one of the initiatives we have is um, about uh, making businesses understand the importance of uh, diversity and inclusion in their workforce, and particular in our case, our, our project relates to persons with disabilities. But one of the things I read or heard recently on social media is it's it's not just about the diversity. It's not so. It's not just about getting the individual in the competition at the curling club. Inclusion is what's matter, right? Will you? It's not just inviting someone to the party; it's asking them if they want to dance, or in your case, shaking your hand and including you in part of the competition as you should be. Treating people equally, the same, <laughs> including people equally. Mm -hmm. I, and that—that's one of the. That might be the worst curling story I've ever heard. That people refuse to shake your hand, like that, gonna, that's. We have more. Awful. I mean, I mean. <laughs> Portia has fallen on the ice at, again, at an event 
that we, we won't even say the name, but she fell pretty hard enough to where her entire tailbone and spine all the way up was black bruised. And when she fell on the ice, not a single person asked if she was okay. Not a single person asked if she needed help to get up. As a matter of fact, the other team, the gentleman laughed, walked right past her, and we continued playing. So that's just one of many. And that was in the U.S. That was yeah, in that was in the U.S. So that, and that was at, a, at an event that we have not repeated. A large championship event. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I'm curious to ask, too, uh, you mentioned the, the difficulty in finding teams and, and staying with teams. Uh, I'm curious how much of the American context, particularly the California context, matters in this just in the size of the curling community there and have you noticed as you've traveled around differences based on the size of the curling community so you know if you take when you know when you come up here there's more curlers in canada certainly than there are in, in california is there a difference based on how many people are members of a club or at a bond spiel or or, or is it just sort of the curling culture is the curling culture I think the culture is really the culture um, in California. I know, especially in the San Francisco Bay area and in Southern California, there has been more of an effort to try to attract different groups of people because of the area that the curling clubs are in, mm -hmm. um, in Oakland and yeah, in San right. Jose, Hollywood curling um, club. But that is very exclusive. I feel to California um, because of the culture and the diversity or acceptance that that is a, I would say culturally a big part of what California is mm -hmm. moving towards the East coast. Um, it's very much so the typical culture that you guys are referring to in Canada, where the only people that you really see curling there are people who have been curling for years. Um, you don't necessarily meet a curler that hasn't been on the ice since they were age six. And if you come to their home club or you're practicing there, then they're very, they're very taken back that you're interested or that you're curling because this is a, a family and a almost a historic thing for a lot of people. They feel as though this is ingrained in their their family traditions and newcomers aren't necessarily welcome. as welcome <laughs> as we would like for them to be. So we, we like to infiltrate and show up to those uh, those spiels anyways, especially when we we see that there are some longstanding spills that haven't seen any diversity. I think it's fun to, to go to those areas and see if we're received or not received, so to speak. <laughs> and if nothing else, at least to enjoy the history of whatever curling club that we're at has to offer, because we truly do enjoy the sport. I mean, just like any other curler, we're watching old Olympics, old Briars, old YouTube footage. We're reading uh, Russ Howard books and, and all of the resources that going you would, camps, yeah, right. going to camps. We're doing all the typical things that you would expect a curler to do. So when we go to these places, as we mentioned, whether we're welcome or not, we make sure to enjoy as much of the history and culture as we can. Uh, Jason, have you had any experiences, you know, if, if I, if I may sort of Ari and Porsche are talking about basically being othered, if I could sort of put it in those terms in these events, like, you know, by members sort of clearly distinguishing this otherness that, you know, that's me pulling in my historian uh, mind for a second. Uh, you know, and Jason, have you had similar experiences? Uh, particularly, I wonder, 
you know, in the context over the past few months, so many videos of anti-Asian racism uh, in the midst of the pandemic, certainly that, that's been going on. And I've only watched the ones in Canada. I'm sure there's tons in the United States as well. But have, have you had similar situations where you have felt or, or been placed as an other within a club? And particularly, I wonder if that accelerated since you started to represent Hong Kong internationally. Um, from a curling club perspective or within the curling community, I haven't had overt experience that uh, Aria and Portia have experienced, right? So I've been fortunate that I haven't experienced anything overtly like that. Um, I do know that, you know, oftentimes, and this happens, for me, it's happened less and less now than it did when I first started curling. I used to get pointed out that, hey, there's an Asian guy curling, right? I don't get that as much anymore. And I certainly haven't had any hostility um, in terms of, or at least overt or open hostility in terms of the fact that I play for, for Hong Kong. Um, but in terms of just racism in, in general, I certainly still experience some racism on the streets of Toronto. Um, you know, I, I just a few months back, I experienced racism right before all this shutdown happened on riding on a TTC streetcar. So racism is there. Um, whether it's overt or not, we, we, we can't deny that racism is there. We've got to find solutions to root it out and get to the root of the problem. Um, I've been fortunate, like I said, that I haven't experienced that overtly within a curling club. Um, but, uh, you know, for us to say that, you know, Canada is better than the U.S. in terms of race relations, you know, I think a lot of us who are not the stereotypical Canadian, right, We'll say that yes, we have experienced racism in our in our society, whether it was through sport or just in general in society. Yeah, and I mean, we had a prime minister who, in the twenty fifteen election, talked about old stock Canadians. Like that, that's a literal mm -hmm. phrase that came out of the prime minister's mouth. And it, I shouldn't get too political, but I mean, come on, like that's it was twenty fifteen. Give like give me a break, like that kind of stuff. And it, and we even have one of the conservative leadership candidates right now talks about taking back Canada. He literally put out an ad that said, "Let's take back Canada," and that's the sort of language that it's not even a dog whistle anymore. It's just like I, it's just they're outright saying it, and it's it's part of you know, I, us versus them. And it's, it's, I mean, obviously it's wrong and it's terrible, but it, it doesn't do anything to address any of the systemic issues that are in place. And certainly in this country, there was another killing of an indigenous person by the RCMP on Friday out in New Brunswick, which is again, part of a systematic problem that takes place that, that, that exists in policing there. And so it's not surprising then to me that this filters into curling clubs or is part of the curling culture, that the, the systemic racism that we see outside exists inside as well. Uh, I, I'm curious though, Jason, just to follow up on that, is when you're, say at the Pacific Asia Championships, where there obviously are more people from the region and more people who are sort of look the same, look look more like you do you notice a difference on the ice does the vibe of the event change do you feel more comfortable i'm just kind of curious is you know when there are more people when you have an experience like me where i look around and saw white people 
you know, if you have an experience similar, when you look around, it's people who look like you. Does, does that change the experience for you at all? It definitely feels different, right? So even when I step into a room and if that room and I'm the only Asian person in there, you, you kind of feel like you're the only one Asian person in there. Uh, and similarly, I'm sure if there was a room of Asians and Portia stepped in our room, you know, she might feel like she's the only one there. So certainly from a competition perspective, when I play in competition series, you're right. I, I do look different from everybody else in the room. Whereas the, actually the Asia Pacific championships is now that we have Africa in our zone and they're playing with, yeah. with team Nigeria are, are actually the Pacific Asia uh, group photo actually looks kind of like Canada. You've got Asians, you've got your, your, your blacks uh, individuals. Uh, you, you've got some, you've got those from the Australian, New Zealand, right? Um, and if we, if we ever get India to, to start up their team, it will actually quite really look like Canada a lot more. Um, what's interesting at the Pacific Asia is, is uh, and this is part of this is due to the nature of the sport and how there are some of the nations who are laser focused on winning medals and getting to the Olympics. And that would be actually the other, you know, um, Asia uh, countries like Korea, China and Japan um, and then the rest of the field, which isn't as well funded, obviously not full-time athletes like Chinese Taipei, ourselves, Nigeria, Australia, New Zealand. Um, there is a bit of a, uh, I wouldn't say, I don't want to say it's a rift, but there's certainly different groups of who's interacting with who, right? So for us as Team Hong Kong, we tend to interact a lot with Team Nigeria and New Zealand and Australia and Taipei and Kazakhstan because we're not the professional teams, you know, with lots of national funding with the sole purpose of winning a world championship medal or getting to the Olympics. Right. So, um, so for us, you know, we're kind of isolated actually from our, you know, the folks that maybe look more like me, the teams from China, we actually don't interact with them all that much because of just the nature of our sport and where it's gotten to and the focus on, you know, Olympic medals for those, those particular nations. Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, Ari and Portia, have you noticed a, a similar thing where people who are at the same competitive level as you, you, you do have a better experience with them versus more competitive or less competitive. Is, have you had a similar experience in that regard? You know, I think immediately to our arena 2018 championships, um, we placed bronze there. And I believe there were two other women um, that were of color. And it was so interesting when we had seen each other because typically you don't see other people of color, whether uh, that is from a Hispanic background, African-American, et cetera, at that championship level. So when we had ran into each other for the first time in 2018, we all got together and had a laugh. <laughs> Hi, you're here. Good to see you. And, and there was this level of understanding where rather than us individually and, and the other person, the other two people had also acknowledged this thought, rather than focusing on the color of our skin and being so outliered with our performance, we could relax and just focus on the sport. So I don't know if necessarily Jason feels the same way, but sometimes when you're in a room with other people that, that look like you, it makes you feel more comfortable where you don't necessarily feel the pressure of one, having to perform at a high level, but two, having to perform at a high level because you're expected to as the outlier and everyone's watching you. So there is- And it's maybe, 
a level of comfort there. Yeah, and maybe it's not even that they're expecting you to perform, but they're paying attention to how you're yeah. going to perform, right? Focusing they're they're much, are, are, are they good, right? right? They don't look like real curlers, right? Are they actually good or are they, you know? Right. And obviously you guys have proven yourselves with your success that you've had, but uh, why should somebody ask that question just because of the way they look, right? They should expect that everybody's there to compete and judge them on the merits of how they've done. Right. We just want to focus on the sport always. And we know that, unfortunately, the way that we look sometimes distracts from that. So absolutely, when you have other people in the room that mirror or mimic that same look, it makes you feel as though you're not the, the sole outlier or distraction, per se. Have you had any barriers in terms of coaching or even from USA Curling, even if not sort of directly or explicitly in terms of finding funding, uh, helping find team members uh, support at that level uh, in your experience as you've gone through the sport? I don't think funding has never been a challenge for us. Our main focus has always been getting mentorship slash coaching to help develop us to the level that we want to be at. Um, and then finding like-minded, you know, teammates that want to get on the ice with us. Um, it's absolutely been a challenge for us and a barrier um, that we've still yet to break. Um, I think there's, back to looking different, I think there's some, so there's some intimidation, I'd say, there in, in even being welcomed. Um I know a couple of years ago, like you say, now there's a lot of excitement, a lot of, you know, attention on what's happening, protests and racism. This is something that the black community experiences like every year. There's always a, a protest about police brutality that's happening. And what stands out to mind is when we first started curling, there were a few names that we were told that were that you need to know. If you want to be a successful curler in the U.S., there are certain names you need to know. And one of them was Phil Drobnik. And a few years ago, I remember, I believe it was the Falangio Castile shooting that took place in Minnesota, that in response to that, he tweeted out a quote of Archie Bunker. And I was like, whoa, I understand that like we all have different political views. That's fine. I don't care about that. I understand we all may have different views of us as people. I don't care about that either. Um, but what I do care about is when it affects me and my ability to move forward or to get any progression in a sport that we have dedicated our lives to. And so if we see comments like that coming from those that head the departments that <laughs> make or break our curling careers, it doesn't feel like we have any chance of, of being welcomed. And it's um, not just, it's not necessarily to single out one person alone because there are other people oh yeah, in leadership. Oh yeah, it's just one example. But just one example. definitely from a professional and a competitive place, it is difficult to seek out mentorship or to ask for mentorship when you know that people that are so influential within that group feel a certain way or feel comfortable enough to express their personal opinions in a professional setting. And I don't know necessarily how things operate with mentorship and staff and in other countries, especially in Canada. But I know here in the U.S. with other other groups and other sports, 
coaching staff and mentorship for basketball, let's say the NBA or the WNBA, those kind of political comments or political personal values and opinions aren't really expressed because the sport that you're in is diversified and you know that that's something that wouldn't be welcomed. Here in curling, because we're not diversified, it seems as though people are more comfortable to say some of those personal things that wouldn't be said in other sports. They wouldn't be accepted. And so when you see things like that, it's like, how do you, how can you say, okay, well, I know that this person feels this way. Now, how am I going to ask them for mentorship? How am I going to ask them for coaching? How am I going to say, hey, do you know two people anywhere in the country that would like to team with us so we could go do some events together? When you know that they have, and, and that's not singling out, like Portia said, one individual, that's just in the general sense. If people feel that way about you or your voice or what you stand for, how are you ever able to progress with them or leverage them as a resource in this sport? So I think it's it's something that we've seen here in the U.S. In Canada, to be honest with you, we haven't really had that problem with mentorship. Russ Howard was awesome. He's <laughs> opened his door to us. Any questions we've had, we've had his camp. Um, even Adam Kingsbury, Adam Kingsbury was you know, very nice he's very nice. That we, a lot of people we've reached nice. out to a lot of different coaches that are in Canada that have given us great responses and we appreciate their feedback. Um, we just haven't really had that same response yeah. from USA Curling, particularly the HPP program. Well, Alia, I'm, I'm really jealous because uh, I've never met Russ Howard, but uh, he is my <laughs> curling <laughs> idol, actually. <laughs> he is my curling idol. So He's the man. We he just saw him in, in October. He yeah. had a great little camp in October out yeah. here. He loves to come to Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. He lives on the East Coast. Why would he not love to go to Arizona <laughs> in the winter? <laughs> Um, I just want to say, Scott, I don't know how many people might be watching, but if anybody has questions on the live stream, they feel free to uh, ask them and, and ask our guests. Uh, and Scott is moderating that and keeping an eye on that if anybody wants to ask questions. And Scott, just hop in whenever there there is one. But I do want to get back to this uh, issue or this question of, of coaching. Uh, for Jason, you know, you, you and Ling have established and really been spearheading the Hong Kong curling program, but you've been doing it from Canada. Uh, so how has your, how has your experience been? I know Rick is, I believe he's the official team coach uh, for Hong Kong. Um, uh, that's Ling's husband for anybody who doesn't know, but what has the experience been for you in trying to get that program going in terms of coaching, funding, that kind of, that kind of thing? Yeah, and so by no means should me or Ling take all the credit, or me or Ling or Ring take all the credit. But I think there's a there's kind of a two pronged approach that we have, right? With the lack of dedicated ice in in Hong Kong, um, and there is some arena ice. Uh, they have a we have, uh, and this only started maybe a couple of years ago, a year or two ago. We got this up and going at um, in a in a mall, in a skating rink or a hockey rink, um, at Festival Walk. They have one session Monday, I believe it's in the evenings or it's in the mornings, can't remember which. They have like a two-hour block. Um, they've got one set of stones and they're getting another set of stones. Actually, I think they just got their second set of real curling stones in there. So that's accommodating more people to come in and, and try it. Obviously, getting the word out is hard and winter sports in a subtropical you know, climate 
and locations is tough. It's a tough sell, right? Um, but um, that is happening. So in Hong Kong, um, they're trying to get people interested, trying it out. And for those who want to, you know, pers- pers- uh, uh, who want to pursue more uh, and to improve their skills, they're trying to identify some athletes in Hong Kong who might have the talent and skills to keep going and maybe eventually be able to represent Hong Kong uh, in bond steals, etc. In Canada, what we try to do is to bring those players who are on the national team for which for the, the different disciplines, the women, the men's, the mix, over to Canada at least once a year to do training on dedicated curling ice because that's important. With a curling coach that has, in Rick, that has uh, his curling certification is quite a high level and done a lot of coaching um, and teaching of the sport. So, yeah, Rick is, uh, you know, I don't think there's any official uh, names or, or, or positions that we use, but you can normally think of him as the national coach for the Hong Kong curling program. Um, and then for um, my men's team, because uh, the men's and women's play Pacifics at the same time, it's impossible for Rick to be coaching both teams simultaneously. It's very, very difficult. Uh, he would not be sleeping at all. So we sometimes have been able to bring in kind of a part-time coach. Um, but that's, that's tough. Without the funding, you can't pay for them to come there. So when we've been able to do it, we've only been able to bring them in for a few days to give Rick a bit of a break. Um, but that's tough because even when, you know, when our part-time coach leaves, uh, Rick is still only able to probably come to the men's games half the time. Um, better than nothing. But again, there's that's where funding and um, – the lack of the coaches that we have at our disposal as well. Um, so there's kind of a two-pronged approach in terms of coaching and grooming uh, Hong Kong curlers. The stuff that's happening in Hong Kong, kind of at the initial stage, right? The getting them interested, identifying some talent, and then at the actual serious coaching stage of trying to bring them over to Canada. Or some in some cases, I know Ling has gone over to Asia and they practiced and participated at Bond's Field in Japan. So, but the key is to get the training on dedicated curling ice, because as you know, arena ice or non-dedicated ice is completely different than curling club ice. And even that curling club ice is different than competition curling ice. Oh yeah. Um, as you know, so. Oh yeah. Yeah. Ari and Portia, you seem to very much agree with the, the ice part of that statement. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Championship ice is different than dedicated ice and dedicated ice is much different than arena ice. We had a, a spiel in um, Southern California a few years back and their humidifier had broken. And so there were these drips that were coming down from the ceiling, creating moguls, little stalagmites on the ice. And we still wanted to play because it was a fun bond spiel. It wasn't serious. And we were chucking those rocks down and they were skipping. (laughs) (laughs) We were very serious. (laughs) 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 We were very serious and we showed up to play. Regardless, moguls or whatever it was, we were still playing. But yeah, we definitely noticed a difference. And then we, in the Bay Area, we've shared ice with the San Jose Sharks. So as you can imagine, it's really fun to try and throw a stone <laughs> right in the middle of a haka that diverts. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it'd be a lot easier. Yeah, it'd be one thing to get on the ice after you know a five-year-old team practices, but after a professional team, like they're they're tearing that ice up a lot more. Uh, oh, yeah. That'd be really hard. Oh yeah, and we've got the, the the professional like the kids skaters, and they're just in there doing their little spins and twirling, and we're like, no, you're you guys, you know? <laughs> throw a stone on that. 
you know, rumor has it though that uh, Wine Country Curling Club has some of the best ice, arena ice in the country. So, That's right. any of your listeners out there, if yeah. you ever come to California, Wine Country is the, the club to go to. Yeah, we actually have our. Don't, don't quote me, but I feel like we have maybe seven or eight curling clubs total now in the state of California. Wow. So California has grown quite a bit in curling. And I know San Francisco Bay Area Curling Club has been full force in their effort and trying to get dedicated ice for the last few years. And they're putting a dedicated ice facility in a very diverse area in Oakland. Um, so I would expect to, to walk into that curling club and see some of the diversity that we're all hoping for. Um, because of location alone, you know, time will tell. Right. I, I want to, I wonder if, or how much, it, I don't know if it's necessarily appropriate, but the idea too of competitiveness, certainly in Canada, there's a lot of discussion about ensuring that the best team represents us at the world championships. And then most importantly at the Olympics so that the country can continue to win. And, and certainly the United States has reformed its programs in terms of how Olympic teams are selected. But one thing that never comes up is that if the sport is exclusionary or not welcoming, that large swaths of the population would never be in line or considered to represent the country. So if we're trying to build the most competitive programs we can, we should want to draw from the largest pool of people possible and, you know, in this country, I, I don't know what the, the breakdowns are, but certainly not all 38 million people or 40 million, whatever our population is now, are being welcomed into curling clubs. So that strikes me as something that should be included in the discussion at the Curling Canada level of ensuring that Canada has a competitive program and continues to compete at the highest level and is the favorite. So, you know, for Ari and Porsche, I'll start with you. Has, has that ever come up? with USA curling, like trying to draw in just, you know, widen the, the participation, reach out to groups that traditionally aren't at curling clubs, just from a purely competitive standpoint to just broaden the base from which USA curling can draw. I think with USA curling, that's a much bigger question. Um, it's not even necessarily around diversity. It's about including those that aren't generational curlers, to be honest with you. It's a very I generational think that's program. the first, that's the first, I'd say, barrier for us as curlers is we working trying to work with the HPP folks, um, learning that a lot of the curlers that they have they've known for a long time or they have been curling for a long time. And so there isn't really a lot of room for additional competitive teams. Um, so I'd say that's probably the first thing. It's just like any other big sport. It's like, look at, look at lacrosse, you know, look at um, NASCAR. You don't see much diversity in those sports either. That's because honestly, some of those sports have made it very clear, not welcomed. So if that's the case with curling, um, I think it starts with the generational gap first and wanting to include new curlers, new faces. And then I think the second piece is we're willing to, you know, target those that are diverse groups that don't look like some of the curlers that we traditionally have. I think it's a combination yeah. of sorts. As it stands currently for the program as we know it here in the U.S., as Audia mentioned, with the generational piece, the high performance program focuses a lot of their attention on the junior curlers, 
that are then fostered into the adult high performance program. I believe the majority of the adult members of the high performance program have been pulled from the juniors group um, that has already been a part very much so of USA curling and the junior HPP program. So these, these children are then groomed to become adult members of a program that other functioning or competitive adults or children maybe that have not had the opportunity to be a part of that program are automatically excluded out of. And that was something that was a really large barrier and continues to be a large barrier for us. One, because we have aged out of what they would consider that program. We're nowhere near junior curlers. And two, <laughs> two knowing that as adult uh, women, if we are, as, as we had mentioned, looking for coaching staff, resources, or an opportunity to gain acceptance into that program, there is only, I believe, one opportunity for us to get in as a, a freestanding team or freestanding members, and it is extremely difficult. So there isn't a place for adult members um, to fit into the adult program, the competitive, the competitive program. program. Um, and I think that that, as we had mentioned, is, is definitely a part of what excludes diversity and inclusion, but also generationally ruins the opportunity for people of all skill sets and, and ages to have acceptance. So what can we do to take small steps initially at, at sort of an individual level to try to make the sport more inclusive? You know, I, I go to the curling club on Monday night, I play my game. I, you know, I, I, don't think I'm being racist and, and you know, tr excluding people in doing that. But I also want the sport to be more inclusive. I want to have a space where everybody can feel welcome and just enjoy the sport because I, I love the sport. And I think the more other people participate, they'll enjoy it as well. So what can we do on individual on an individual basis, do you think, to, to make the sport more inclusive and, and to make it a welcoming place. Scott, I see you unmuted yourself. Did you want to say something? Yeah, I've got a, a bus that goes outside my house, so it's really loud. That's why I've been <laughs> muted this whole time. Um, but with uh, Sean, we, we talked last year, we did an episode on uh, the gay nationals here. Yeah. It's Pride Month now. We've seen a lot of leagues open across Canada that are uh, rainbow leagues or gay leagues. <clears throat> and it's uh, helped a lot, uh, the inclusion of that community into the other leagues at the club. So I'm wondering if <clears throat> our guests think that having a league night tailored to a specific community or having uh, maybe an intro to curling targeted through maybe a cultural center uh, that's located somewhere or uh, another community group and say, hey, you're all invited to come try curling. And I wonder if that uh, is one of the first steps we can take, but uh, I also don't know how effective it would be. So I'd like to, to ask our guests that if they think that would be effective. I think with, when it comes to doing a specific night that's tailored to, I think one of the challenges that we feel is having the attention focused on us. So when I think of that for, like if we were to have a night that was like, you know, African-American night, you know, or something like that, it, it may feel like, oh, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of eyes on me and you still have that discomfort. I really like the, the idea, though, of 
having introductions to curling at places like recreational centers, like you had made a reference to, because I think that bringing curling to some of those communities, um, diverse communities will make it more accessible to them and it will generate their interest to maybe Absolutely. seek outwards. Um, Portia and I were actually just talking about that. Yeah. So maybe you have some thoughts on that. We were mentioning earlier here in the States, it's not that there aren't curling clubs in, in areas that serve these communities. Um, there are, are, as Jason had mentioned, especially in, in Toronto, there is a very diverse population in Toronto as there are very diverse popula populations around the arena curling clubs and even some of the dedicated facilities that we have. I think immediately of Chicago and Pittsburgh where you go to those clubs and there, there aren't any people that look like us. There are no minorities really that curl there for the most part. And that's not because they're not in areas where those communities ha are, are full of minorities mm -hmm. that may want to curl. It's the outreach. And mm -hmm. so Scott, you did bring up a great point, maybe finding a way to partner with community centers or recreation centers and areas where curling already exists, but they have never, had a thought or an introduction, maybe they don't even know that the shared arena with the figure skaters and the hockey players does curling on Saturdays or Sundays, having a flyer or a billboard there, having someone that will come in during a time where children are doing recreational hour just to speak about curling or do a small demo. We have a lot of floor curling. Um, there are a lot of different I, I games, shuffleboards and things that I've seen where at the clubs we gain great interest for new curlers that have never seen the sport. And if those things were brought to those communities at a recreational or community center level, as well as I believe we talked about with some of the schools, yeah. college levels, like Jason had mentioned, the UT program, but also elementary schools and high schools. There are a lot of high school students, I'm sure, that would love to spend time on the ice that don't know that this program exists. Yeah, and we're, we're those yeah. from California. We were surrounded by curling clubs. We had no idea that any of them existed. And we were surprised to go inside and see that there were so many people packed. You know, the learned curls were packed, mm. sold out some of them. We're like, wow, this has been going on for years. We had no idea. <laughs> yeah, part of the, the problem with going to a club and feeling different is that, uh, that like, because you feel different, you sort of are loath to go back. Maybe you feel uncomfortable. You think, well, oh, uh, this isn't for me. But if you have a, a league with more people who look the same, who have a common cultural touchstones, who can talk about things after and feel like they're part of the same community, then the curling club becomes a more inclusive space for those people, I, I would hope. And they would feel more interested in going back. And and like I say, I think we've done a pretty good job with the the Rainbow Leagues across Canada, anyway, uh, in making that community feel uh, more accepted in curling. And I think it's it's maybe something we could look at doing uh, for other communities as well. Yeah, so, I, yeah I wonder. Because sorry, go ahead, Jason. So certainly. <clears throat> You're, you're, I think Scott is right in terms of the Rainbow Leagues, the LGBTQ Leagues. Um, you know, I, I curled at the Royal Canadian Curling Club here in Toronto for a couple seasons on a, on a, on a different mixed team. And they, they have one of the larger programs for that community. And you see them, and I was in the mixed league, uh, you know, the regular evening mixed league. Um, and you see a lot of those curlers in the uh, Rainbow Leagues joining the other leagues too, right? So 
and for for the Royal Canadian Curling Club, it's a source of pride that they have this have this uh, inclusion of this community into their club. Um, I haven't seen um, other leagues like that for specific cultural communities or racial communities. Whether that will work or not, maybe. Maybe it works. I think one of the bigger challenges, though, for at least really urban curling clubs, certainly in Toronto, is the lack of actual ice time to give up. At my club, at East York, at Side, at the Royals, at Hyde Park, at Oakville, you wouldn't be able to squeeze out. It's very hard to squeeze out another two-hour block for a new league um, at a good time slot, right? right. Um, and so that is, I think, one of the bigger challenges is to, to doing that, uh, at least in curling clubs in like an urban center like uh, Toronto. Wait, you don't want the Sunday morning at six slot? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's what we could offer. Yes, the Sunday morning at six a.m. Yeah. Actually, at East York Curling Club, we might not even be able to offer that because at East York, we're actually a city-owned facility, so it could be whether the city will be willing to open the club at six o'clock in the morning to to accommodate that and what the collective bargaining agreement is with the ice makers. Well, I, I was thinking too today that you know, in terms of getting different communities interested, the representation at the highest level can can be part of that. And I was thinking CBC on Hockey Night in Canada, they have the Punjabi broadcast. So it's a Punjabi play-by-play. I think it's a team. I think there's two of them who, who do it. So could TSN, you know, instead of showing the games on TSN 1, 3, 4, and 5, maybe one of those TSNs could have a, a Punjabi language play-by-play play of the curling broadcast and maybe that type of initiative can help generate more interest in communities that traditionally don't really get involved in, in curling and and that sort of thing is the a small step that tsn potentially could take in reaching out to different communities certainly i know in the united states linguistically uh it might not be the same but maybe maybe nbc sports on curling night in america maybe they could do a spanish language version of yeah. the show right to reach out to different communities Absolutely. I think that yeah, that was actually something that I was thinking about too, Sean, was whether just like your example, the Punjabi version of Hockey, Hockey Night in, in Canada, whether that's possible. And I guess for a network, it's always going to be down to the dollars and cents, right? Whether there's going to be viewership um, for that. But, you know, one possibility I could see is, you know, a TSN promoting the hell out of, you know, a world championship China versus Canada game and doing that specific broadcast in the two languages, right? In an English version and, and yeah. a French version and a, and, a, and a Chinese version, right? Or the game against Japan is there's a Japanese uh, broadcast for that or uh, audio for that one. Or maybe it's just even borrowing or buying the, the broadcast that NHK is doing out of Japan for the Japanese feed instead, right? Does TSN even have to have their own commentators for it? Can we just buy the feed? from the other broadcaster to broadcast it in a different language. Right. Or just trade it, right? The NHK can have the, the TSN broadcast for any English speaking expats in Japan. And then TSN can do the NHK one for Japanese speaking Canadians. Like that, that seems right. like a win-win. Exactly. Yeah. Sounds like a great Sorry. idea. Yeah. Sorry, Ari, did you want to say something? I felt like I interrupted you. No, no, no. I was just going to piggyback and say there's tons of opportunities for partnerships. And so I think you guys are are talking about a couple of them. I think there are plenty of them out there. I'm I'm curious to know too what what do we think the biggest roadblock is in terms that this is a huge question I realize but uh, uh, biggest roadblock in terms of 
diversifying the sports at the club level. You know, you, you've each talked about your own personal experiences, but what is it that is is the biggest impediment for clubs welcoming in people, being a space of inclusivity and having a more representative population in the club as to the communities in which these clubs exist? I, I would say just to start off, being at the events or in areas that the communities you're targeting uh, frequent or show up to. Um, for instance, with Wine Country, we'll go or we'll host a lot of events that are uh, more up north towards, I believe it's Pollock Pines on the way towards North Tahoe. Uh, we'll do festivals and fairs and different things that are still specific to a demographic that lives or frequents in that area. But if you're looking to diversify, as we had mentioned, maybe showing up to different community events that are in areas that, that are not necessarily close to the club or do not serve the current members. So that way you, you're putting curling in the face of people that have not seen it before. I think that's an immediate win for all clubs. Make friends with people that don't look like you. If you want to make the effort. Right. I think I agree. Jason, I think that's what you need to do, right, is to intentionally go to the groups that have been underrepresented in our sport. But the impediment is actually the membership base currently itself. Right. They don't think about doing that necessarily. Um, and if you and a lot of curling club boards of directors are representative of that one community, slightly older white established Canadians. And so they don't think about that necessarily at their board level as a high priority. So I think one thing to do for all clubs is to think more about whether, you know, their mixed league or their league committees, as well as their board is to get more diversity onto their league committees and their board, because that will give you more perspectives, new ideas, and better be able to outreach different communities. I guess one of the things I wonder about, though, is the resources that are available to do that. Certainly, you know, clubs in this country, urban clubs. Well, I can only speak for the Ottawa situation. The Ottawa Curling Club, for instance, is full most nights. So there's no real push for that financially push to go get new members, regardless of, of what they look like, because the club is full and it makes money and sort of who cares, I guess. But and then rural clubs or smaller clubs, mostly volunteer based, may not have the time or the money to go and, and, and engage in that that outreach. And maybe the same as in the U.S., certainly arena clubs seem to run on shoestring budgets, mostly with volunteers. So I, I am curious, you know, I, I recognize that it is really important to, to do outreach and to go and, and you know, get interest or try to generate interest in communities but i do wonder is is there that element of it that so much of the sport is based on a volunteer basis and there's not a lot of financial resources to do that and is that something that national governing bodies or provincial bodies in this country uh, should be responsible for in providing funding for that type of of outreach as opposed to leaving it to individuals who might already be maxed out in terms of their time commitment or financial commitment? Well, I certainly think that it is one of the responsibilities 
there are, of course, lots of stakeholders, and I think everybody has their own individual responsibility to, to, to increase our diversity and inclusion in the sport, right? From the individual member to the to the leagues, to the individual curling club and facility, as well as to the local associations like the Toronto Curling Association, to the provincial body like the uh, Curl On here in Ontario, and of course, the Curling Canada on, an, on a national level. Certainly, we have seen some initiatives from the Curling Canada to to do this, right? One is, of course, through the Rocks and Rings program. That is one outreach mechanism to different, to younger people, but also to a more diverse group, uh, audience. But of course, the payoff for a Rocks and Rings program into someone actually curling, I don't know if there's ever any statistics on how many of those kids end up going into curling. And maybe they don't go into curling now, but they're going into curling later, and we don't have the data to, to necessarily back that up. We've certainly seen Curling Canada put out much more diverse advertising, right, to get people interested in curling. I think it kind of maybe started with the Johnny the Hammer Chow commercial, but it's now progressed to even more diversity than that in, in the recent um, uh, in the recent years. So certainly there's a, there's a role to play um, from, from the national bodies and probably maybe even more so from, um, you know, a body that is more local like the Toronto Curling Association or, the, or I don't know if Ottawa Valley has a curling association as well. I, I think they do. And I think the Hamilton area has one as, as well. But for some of the smaller communities and the more rural communities, they actually don't usually have that sort of a, a, a sort of like a local or regional um, body for that. Sport. And you're right. You're depending all a lot on the volunteers and how do they, you know, how do you expect the volunteers to to do all that legwork? And what's the situation for you in California? And I'm curious too if there's been situations as part of your career where you've been imposed upon as the the two black women who curl that people view it as almost your now it's your job you you go recruit more a, a more diverse audience. Have you had situations where that has been put on you because of who you are? I think slightly. Um, there is a an expectation that we're to bring more people into the community or uh, that we're uh, kind of the poster children for diversity when it comes to advertising or marketing um, interviews, things like that. But I, I noticed that Jason had mentioned, you know, with Curling Canada or Curl On for Ontario, there's a lot of diversity in marketing. Here we don't see as much diversity with our marketing. So I think that that is an immediate step that that absolutely the national body here for USA Curling could take a step to change. Um, we have monthly newsletters, monthly newspapers that come out advertising about equipment, obviously, and none of that marketing is inclusive with minority groups. And that is is not necessarily just people of color, but just minorities in general. Um, we don't see any any minority advertising. So that is an immediate uh, change, I think, that could happen here that will absolutely make a difference or spark interest. Um, if you see a newspaper with people who look the exact opposite of you, then you're maybe not as encouraged to read it as you would if there were a diverse mix of people as you're scrolling through the pages. So I, I noticed that that is something that's really large for clubs out here. We have, I think, uh, bodies that are by region, the MOPAC Association and in different regions, I think that also could be more accountable, not necessarily just from an advertising level, but the outreach and the funding that we had talked about for the rural clubs or volunteers, et cetera. From a regional perspective, I know that the funding and the resources there 
could be allocated to acceptance and diversity or inclusion. And how do we, I'm curious too, to make sure that, you know, the, the discussion doesn't, you know, I used the word tokenism in, earlier that it, you know, that these sorts of things aren't tokeny. And I'll use the example, just how I personally feel about rainbow things that, um, you know, I'm glad that we're being, you know, that people like me can feel included and can feel welcomed and all that stuff, but I don't need to see another rainbow donut, for instance, right, right. right? in June, right? That sort of stuff feels really tokeny to me and doesn't really make me feel good at all for as much <laughs> as I think it makes the company feel good about what the company is doing. So, you know, at what point do we, or, or how do we ensure that it doesn't cross that line into tokenism and, and make sure that these are genuine attempts to be welcoming and to truly diversify the space? Well, I'll, I'll just say that at least in our experience, being genuine means being <laughs> having that acceptance more so than the initial meet. When you meet someone or you meet a, a person of color, maybe you see someone different in your club that doesn't look like you, that doesn't necessarily mean welcoming them there, but how do you respond and how do you interact with those groups as they continue to frequent the club that you're at? It's, it's more than being welcome and saying you have a place here. It's also about how you treat and retain the members that come in and visit the spaces that you're in. So one thing that can be taken away, I'm sure, as, as you know, with Pride Month and all of the things that, that we get to experience and see as tokens of, of what sexuality is, Really being genuine is, is just, I mean, being a good being a good friend and being a good teammate. <laughs> it's also making people feel as if they're equal to you just naturally as you're right. talking to them. So if you do if you do have some sort of recruiting effort to the Asian community, it's not it, when they're finally coming into the curling club. It's like, okay, all right, everybody who's Asian, hey, nice to meet all of you. I'm so happy that you guys are curling. It can't feel like that. It has to feel as if that Asian person is no different than that black person. That black person is no different than that Mexican. That Mexican person is no different than that white person and so on. We all it has to stack feel the same. The same. Right. If you put so much attention on one specific group, then we, we never have a chance to feel normal. Hmm. Jason, did you want to say anything on that at that topic? No, I, I think um, you know. They, I think they they pretty much summed up what I was going to say. It's it's not just about diversity, right? It's about the inclusion piece too. Um, it's not about just inviting someone to the party but asking them to dance, right? So I think that's what's important. Everybody should take think about that when we are looking at this outreach to different communities for curling is making sure that they are not just you get the diversity, but you have them included, and they've been asked to dance. Scott, is there any questions from anybody who's watching by chance? I've not seen any questions coming in. Okay. Um, I think we've, we've covered a lot of things about uh, what we can do as curlers to welcome people into the club. I'm wondering uh, what, where we want to go from there. Sean, I know you've guided a lot of discussions before, so uh, I'll leave it to you. But uh, yeah. are, are, no. we, are we feeling good? right now yeah i was i was just going to sort of have a, a sort of a final if there's nothing from the the facebook audience yeah i was just going to 
sort of a final question is, you know, what, what do you think the next steps are? It's great that these discussions are, are happening. It's certainly not just our show, you know, Rocks Across the Pond has, has done an episode uh, discussing diversity, not just in curling, but in general and anti-racism. These discussions are taking place uh, across the world, really, uh, at, at this moment. It's great that that's happening in this moment. Obviously, the circumstances surrounding it are not great, but, it, you know, that there is a discussion going on. But how, what steps can we all take in our lives to make sure that this doesn't fizzle out at the end of the month or at the end of the week, or, or that this is an ongoing thing that we're committed to anti-racism and dismantling the systemic racism that exists in our communities and in our societies. And not just within the curling club, but in our, in our daily lives. And obviously Scott, people who look like us, you know, one thing is to call it out when we see it. And that that's, I think, an important step that, that we can do. But uh, for our, our guest, I'm, I'm curious as to what you think the, the next steps are and how we can continue this dialogue to further the discussion and ultimately work to dismantle the structural issues that contribute to systemic racism in our respective countries. I think something that immediately jumps to mind is what Portia has said about making friends with someone that doesn't look like you. And how Jason said, you know, if you're going to invite us to the party, ask us to dance. Um, I think that we have to have more of these conversations. I think we need to have more honest conversations and not be so afraid of the response that we're going to get from either party. It's time to get uncomfortable and have these uncomfortable discussions. That way we know how to move on. Um, I was really happy to see that you guys spearheaded having this conversation. Um, this alone, I mean, huge kudos to you guys, because these aren't the initiatives that we're seeing in the U.S. from curling. So it's really happy to see, you know, it's really, I'm really happy to see that you guys are taking that initiative. I think we need to see others that do the same thing. I think curling clubs need to look inside and say, well, one, do we really want diversity? And two, because that's an honest question. You may not, you may not want diversity in your club. That's okay. You know, so it's just being honest with yourself. And one, do you really want to have diversity? And two, what has been holding us back from not having diversity at that club? And really take a chance, uh, take a moment to look within. So that way we can all have honest conversations and move forward. Absolutely. Systemically, I think that it really is, it starts at home. And rather than noting and calling out these differences, celebrating them, um, just because we're different and we operate differently on and off the ice, there are certain things to be said about how I function versus how Audia functions versus Jason, Sean, Scott. So all of those things that make us extremely different, though they're great callouts, they're still great things to celebrate, I think, about people individually and to learn to accept those differences where they don't feel so awkward and uncomfortable, but they can be acknowledged in a place that is, is friendly and accepting. Yeah. I, I'll just tell a quick story. I, I spent a year uh, during my undergrad in Barbados and there was a couple classes that I was in where I was the only white person in the class. And I had this one professor, I had him the whole time I was there and it was towards the end and uh, he, he started a, a discussion about affirmative action and that was the, the, the subject of the, the lecture. And he started the lecture by saying, 
we should all know what affirmative action is because we're all black. And then he looked over at me and he said, except for you. <laughs> and I, and I, I would tell that story to my friends, all of whom were black, who I was living with in Barbados, and they would all laugh. They thought that was a hilarious story. And I came home and I would tell my friends in North Bay, who were, I think, all white, that story, and they would clam up and get super uncomfortable with it. And I think it's just that that's the sort of thing that, you know, let's let's explore why that story would make you uncomfortable uh, mm-hmm. and address it. And, you know, as you were talking about, Portia, the, the difference is let's celebrate them. Let's acknowledge them first, that there are differences and let's celebrate what they are and also then celebrate the collectivity of it and, and how we are all human and who we all feel and, and you know, really just allow for that. <laughs> um, Jason, did you have any anything you wanted to say? Well, I, what I want to say was there's what better sport than curling to try to bring different groups of people together. And, and the reason I say that is the whole notion of broom stacking after a game, it's not just you get to play against your opponents and hopefully more diverse opponents over time, but you also get to know them afterwards when you have your drink. Um, and, and so I, I just think curling has this great potential one of the unique sports that have this great potential to actually bring those different communities together, right? It's not a sport where you play against the opponents and then you leave, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so so I think curling has great potential. I just wanted to j- just go back to something that you said, Sean, in terms of curling clubs and at the Ottawa club or at many urban curling clubs, it is already packed, right? Is there really an incentive for uh, for those clubs to be, trying to get more members because they can't actually accommodate that many more members. Um, and, and maybe, and maybe it's not right now, but I think sports and any sorts of sports, there's going to be ebbs and flows in terms of popularity. Uh, we, and what I've seen in another sport, which used to be packed, the golf and country clubs in Toronto used to be packed that you couldn't get a membership into St. George's or Weston or, or, or Scarborough, you, you would, you know, the memberships cost tens of thousand dollars and there were these long waiting lists. I heard that you basically have to wait for someone to die. And then you pretty much have to know someone at the club to recommend you to get you in. Now those golf clubs don't have that long. They're dying for people to come in and, and buy memberships, right? So they rested on their success or maybe the false notion that they have these long memberships thinking that that will just continue forever. And I think for any business, and a curling club is a business, you have to think about a, lo- a longer time frame than just that. Yeah, that's a great point. That yeah, we we do need to be more forward thinking, and and across the board, yeah, even if an individual club is currently full, you're right, it's not going to be that way forever. And and numbers are down in this country, in general. So and you know that we're losing clubs is 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 something that is almost unfathomable when you think of curling in this country, even in places like Saskatchewan. You know, a couple clubs have closed in Regina and, you know, if, cl- if, cl- if a club can close in Regina, then, you know, that's sort of the canary in the coal mine almost to think about the future of the sport. And certainly diversity and diversifying the sport just leads to not only, a, I, I think, a you know, a more welcoming and, and inclusive community of curlers, but just the health of the sport is improved. And uh, certainly I think it. it it's growing in certain parts of the, the world, but in Canada, 
yeah, we need to be more proactive and, and just make it a more inclusive place. So Scott, do you have anything you wanted to add? I agree. <laughs> All right. Great, great, great contribution, Scott. <laughs> Thanks. Eddie. Solid, solid job. So uh, I just want to take, take a moment and thank our uh, guests, uh, Portia Stevenson, Aaron Moore, all the way from California, Jason Chang from Toronto. Thank you so much for taking the time today to join us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, guys. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, uh, Sean and Scott. Thanks so much, uh, Aria and Portia. Great meeting you. And uh, I, I wish you guys well in your future curling endeavors. And, you know, mm -hmm. what I take away from this, and it links back to how you started the conversation, Sean, is I hope that one day when Vic does his final essay monologue, that we see that diversity that we're talking about today in yeah. his monologue. So there you have it. Our discussion with Aria Moore, Portia Stevenson, and Jason Chang. And we, again, thank them for joining us for what was a wonderful discussion uh, in the moment. You know, as I was sitting there and listening to them, I was very moved by some of the stories that they were telling. And in listening to it back and preparing for this week's release, uh, again, just uh, reminded me of, of how great of a discussion it was and how wonderful Aria, Portia, and Jason are and uh, how, how generous they were with their time and with sharing their experiences. So hopefully you enjoyed that. And there are certainly things we can all do in our respective communities at a micro level to ensure that our facilities and the sport is welcoming as many people as we can. So that's going to be it for this week. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show. Wherever you get your podcast, do likes, ratings, comments, all that fun stuff. Helps other people find the show and keeps us growing. You can also head on over to GameofStonesPod.com for all of our past episodes. Plus, if you click on the merch tab, we got all our merch, the T-shirts, the proceeds from those are going to Food Banks Canada. All the rest of the merch proceeds to the Sandra Schmirler Foundation. We are matching all those proceeds as well. You can also follow along with everything we got going on in the show on Instagram and Twitter at Game of Stones Pod. Facebook, it's Game of Stones Podcast, where even though the video of this doesn't exist, our discussion with Carrie Galusha and Andrew Paris on diversity in curling with them. That video still exists on the Facebook page, so you can find that one over there, as well as all the other stuff that we got going over on the Facebook page. And of course, if you want to let us know what you'd like to hear on the show, please do reach out, Podcast at gmail.com. So enjoy the Paralympic Games. Enjoy the Briar. We'll be back next week to talk about who has emerged victorious from those two events. But until then... Keep those brooms on the ice and don't dump that intern. Make the final.